one who is greater than we are. <laughs> we don't worship our equal. We don't worship one who is like us. That would be rather depressing and discouraging, but we worship one who is uh, perfect in all of his ways. And Andy is right. What a privilege and blessing it is to, to be in his presence. Let's, um, let's, before we look at the Gospel of Luke again, let's, let's bow, if you will, again in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and we, we thank you for the praises and the prayers and the reading of Scripture that's already gone before. And we just want to ask that you'd receive our worship today through Jesus, uh, Father, with, with um, bodies that are tired and with uh, a life of busyness and even the distractions of, of sadness and grief. Would you, just in your mercy, um, give us grace to, to worship you the rest of our time together this morning? It is an honor, it's a privilege to sit before your word. It's so rich, but Father, we need your spirit to make it profitable. So we ask of you for that in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's look again um, at Luke's gospel. I'm, I'm thankful this morning uh, to not preach Timothy to you, but to preach Jesus. <laughs> that also would depress you if we had to preach ourselves. Paul said we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord. So what I want to do this morning is just look at the prologue to Luke's gospel and then look at just some of the high points of, of the life of Jesus. I love this prologue to Luke's gospel. And we'll read these first um, four verses and then jump into it. So the gospel of Luke, starting at the very beginning. Luke says, For as much as many have taken in hand... To set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou has been instructed. If you watch a movie and it opens with based on a true story, for me at least that always heightens my interest because it's interesting to see a, a just a fiction that's exciting or intriguing or whatever, but when you see something based on a true story, I always perk up this really happened. This is this really happened. Well, this is even better than a movie, of course, but Luke is saying, as he writes this prologue, he's saying, what I'm about to tell you is a true story. What I'm about to tell you is completely and totally reliable. Luke is writing to this man who he refers to as most excellent Theophilus, probably a government official with a name like that. Uh, we really don't know who this guy was. We, we don't know, was he already a convert and was just struggling and needed to be instructed more? Was he sniffing around at Christianity and curious and interested and, 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 and Luke is, is ready to give him more? Or was he already a believer and just struggling with doubt? We don't know where he was, but Luke says, I'm writing all this to you, Theophilus, verse 4, that you might know the certainty of the things wherein you've been instructed. The Christian faith, the things that you've heard about Jesus. I'm telling you all this, and he even tells him how I, how I got the information I'm giving you that you might have the certainty of the things wherein you have been instructed. Luke was a travel companion of Paul. We know that um, from the book of Acts. 
but you've probably heard uh, it taught in Acts 16 that Luke is writing Acts and he says, they did this, they did this, and then all of a sudden he said, and we did this. So he joined Paul's company of, of gospel ministry and Luke traveled with Paul. It was a loyal companion of Paul. Um, Paul referred to Luke in Colossians 4 as the beloved physician. So we know he's an educated man. He's trained in medicine. Um, he's a Greek. Uh, we know that Luke, again, was loyal to Paul. Paul would write in 2 Timothy when he was about to die, he would say, only Luke is with me. And so this man was invested in the ministry. He, this was a man who had who had been in danger for the sake of Christ. If you're around the Apostle Paul very long, it's going to get uncomfortable at some point. And Luke was, was faithful. He was a loyal companion of Paul in his gospel ministry. And so he's writing to Theophilus. And look at how he got to his conclusions. I love this prologue. Verse 1, he says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration or a, a narration is what it means, of the things which are most surely believed among us. And that most surely believed could also mean the things that have, have been accomplished among us, the things that have happened in our midst, the things that, that we are basing our faith upon, even as they delivered them to us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding, and that means, perfect understanding means to trace out thoroughly, to investigate, to follow closely, um, of all things from the very first to write unto thee in order, in an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. So just take a step back. That's a mouthful. Here's what Luke is saying. Luke is saying many people have written about the life of Jesus. And we have heard from them. Luke himself, I have heard from them. And they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. You know, if you tell a story and you have one eyewitness... That helps your case, doesn't it? And if you have multiple eyewitnesses, that helps your case even more. And we think about even eyewitnesses who are eyewitnesses, and they're willing to give their eyewitness testimony about what they've seen and even put their life and safety on the line to give their eyewitness testimony. That makes the case even stronger. Well, that's what we have in the Christian faith. That's what we have in the Christian faith, that, that, that men who suffered intensely for their faith, and who even died for their faith, they kept true to their eyewitness testimony. Now, some have said, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, that they all claimed they saw him after, and they, they, all, they all hallucinated, right? They all, all of them hallucinated and, and, and thought they saw him, they were sincere, and that's why they were willing to die. But that might have happened to one guy, that might have happened to two guys, but a whole bunch of folks, 500 eyewitnesses, 500 folks don't typically have the same hallucination vision and then are willing to die for it, right? So Luke is saying many people have given a narration. That, that's a history. It's just a statement of facts of the things which have, which have most surely believed, the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke is saying, I'm not writing to you allegory. I'm not writing to you science fiction. I'm not writing to you even like apocalyptic literature like Revelation. I'm writing history to you. I'm writing things that have really happened. And eyewitnesses have corroborated what happened. And then I love verse 3. Luke said, it seemed good to me also. Luke was led by the Spirit to write this gospel. And it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Again, 
That perfect understanding means to, to trace out thoroughly, to investigate, to follow closely. So here you have Luke. We know he's educated. He's a physician. And Luke has eyewitness testimony. And Luke says, I have thoroughly investigated the things that I'm writing to you about. Theophilus, and I'm telling this to you so that you might know how sure, how certain the things are concerning Jesus of Nazareth. It is highly probable because Luke's gospel is so detailed. It's, it's more detailed in many ways than the other gospels. The, there's, there's lots of material that's in Luke's gospel that's not in the other gospels, and there's lots of detail. For instance, the, um, the, the birth stories. I mean, it takes Luke three chapters just to get to the baptism of Jesus. And you have details. You have details. And it's very likely, we don't know for sure, but it's very likely that Luke would have interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus, and heard about the angelic vision for sure. Uh, it's very likely that he would have talked to her and, and how she would have told him that, you know what, little baby John, he, he leaped in Elizabeth's womb when I showed up in the room and gave my greeting. So, John, so Luke, had, he had interviewed people. He had traced thoroughly. He had investigated and people might say, yeah, that, that just sounds too good to be true. But do you know, and, and, and why do we say all this? We say all this so that you today might know the certainty of these things, right? Christians are not immune to doubt. You know that? I remember when I was in college that uh, I had been, you know, my family background raised going 100 times a week to church, you know, <laughs> memorizing scripture, hearing the word over and over again. I remember I got to college, I wondered, is is all this just made up? I mean, I know my parents are sincere, but maybe I was, you know, you have these, these thoughts, and these, these professors seem intelligent. They seem like, you know, normal people. Maybe I've got it all wrong. You know, none of us have ever seen heaven with our physical eyes, have we? We, we, we can't see prayer travel up, you know, visibly through the sky. We've never physically seen Jesus sitting on the throne. But let me tell you this, brothers and sisters, that there is, there is nothing but good reason to believe the word of God. It's not illogical, right? It's not illogical to believe the gospel. It's not, um, it's not uh, foolish to believe the gospel. And we know that faith, at the end of the day, is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's not unreasonable to believe the gospel. And so our faith should be fortified and strengthened by things like this, that Luke wasn't just pulling stuff out of thin air. This was a man who investigated. This was a man who was educated. And get this. Even secular historians, even secular historians admire the, the accurate history of the gospel of Luke. In Luke, I have this written down, in Luke, there are 32 countries that are mentioned, 54 cities, nine islands, numerous government officials. There's details like this in, in chapter 3 when, when Luke would say this. Listen to the detail, verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, there's two guys in places right there, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Idorea and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias the tetrarch of Abilene. You're like, man, that guy did his homework. Well, a while back, folks said, well, this Lysanias, he was the tetrarch of Abilene, but that was a good while before John the Baptist. So Luke had the right names, the wrong time. Too bad. Well, then they did some more archaeological research. They found out, well, Lysanias either had a son or a grandson who was the Tetrarch of Abilene. They said, you know what, Luke was exactly right. So of all these names that are mentioned, all of these cities, all of these places, even secular historians have said, man, we're not even Christians, you know. We don't even love Jesus. But you, gotta, you have to admit, this Luke, 
He did his homework. He had his history down. When we read these pages, we read about Jesus saying, you ought to give everything for the kingdom. We're not just reading some crazy guy named Luke who came up with something to control people's lives. We're reading accurate, historical, the very words of God himself. I love what Philip Graham Ryken says. He says that Luke was the one who did the research and the writing, but God was the one who gave us the gospel, right? The work that Luke did was under the sovereign control of God's spirit so that the gospel he wrote is the very word of God. And the Christian faith, it gives big truth claims unashamedly, right? It it talks about heaven and hell. That's big stuff. It talks about sin and forgiveness and salvation. It talks about how that we're to live. It gives us big, big claims unashamedly. And Luke is saying, I've written these things to you. I have done the research, Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things wherein you have been instructed. So Luke was not writing science fiction. He wasn't writing uh, superhero Marvel comic literature. He's writing reliable history about a real man named Jesus, a real salvation, a glorious hope of eternal life. Now let's look at some of the, the high points of the life of Jesus in Luke's gospel for a few minutes um, this morning. Look back in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, where we were last night. After the the angel told Mary that Jesus, as we read last night, would be given the throne of David, look at Mary's response in verse 34. She had the question that we all would have, right? Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Mary hears this message from the angel that you're going to give birth to a son. His name will be Jesus. He's the son of the highest. He'll be given the throne of his father David. And Mary is not, she's not denying it. She's not saying, how can it be? I mean, I've not been with the man. Joseph and I are a spouse. We've not come together. How could it be? And you know, it's amazing how that we, we speak of a Trinitarian salvation, don't we? In many aspects, right? The Father chose, the Son came, the Spirit converts. But look at it from this aspect. The Father sent the Son, and the Son came, but the Holy Spirit produced the birth. Isn't that amazing? The, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, we can't diagram that. We can't put it under a microscope. But we have what we need to know, right? That the power of the Holy Spirit in a mysterious way beyond anything that's ever happened before, superseding the normal way of things that God has made, he produced within the womb of Mary this conception, this real human being that for nine months would be formed and shaped in that womb and eventually would be brought into this world. You say, well, why was that necessary? Why was it necessary? Notice he said, that holy thing, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, that may be referring to Jesus' deity. He's certainly holy as, as God. But it may be referring to his holy human nature. He had to be born of a virgin. Why? Because if he's born in the normal way of things like the rest of us are, what do sinners produce? They just produce sinners. 
They might be cute. They might have different shades of hair and different eye colors and different personalities and different strengths and weaknesses. But at the end of the day, they're all just a bunch of sinners. And here's why it was necessary, and this relates to us, is that sinners can't save sinners. They can't do it. And so the Son of God, when he took on human flesh, had to, be, had to be, uh, have human nature without and apart from the contamination of sin that was contaminates all the rest of us. Because God is holy and righteous, and God will not accept a tainted sacrifice for sin. So that when Jesus died on the cross, he was the Lamb of God, the pure, spotless Lamb of God, free from original sin, free from sin by nature or by practice, the holy, pure, spotless Son of God, who was able to take our sins upon himself and offer a pure sacrifice before God. Isn't that beautiful? The only perfect human being who's ever lived. And it all started right here. We'll look in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, it tells us that this young Jesus, it tells us that he grew in wisdom. Where am I at? I'm in the wrong spot. In Luke, yes, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, when he's dedicated in the temple, it says in verse 40, And the child grew, and he waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. It says that Jesus grew in verse 52. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was a real human being, fully God, worthy of our worship, worthy of the angel's praise, but he went through the normal human process. At some point, Joseph and Mary had to teach Jesus, little Jesus, that two plus two equals four. Joseph, no doubt, taught him how to do chores. No, you don't do it that way. You've got to do it this way. They probably said, look at all the stars. Well, where did the stars come from? Even as, a, even as a real human being, just like us, yet without sin, but just like us, he, had to, he probably skinned his knee and he got dirty and had to have baths and maybe he had a favorite food and maybe he didn't know a real human being. What do we see here? The humility of the Son of God that he would be willing to take on human flesh and become one of us and, and be willing to humble himself to be a five-year-old at one point, to pass through the stages of puberty and, 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 and adolescence and all of that, that Jesus went through the whole human experience, the whole human experience. We know one of the reasons why is that Hebrews tells us so that he would be a merciful and sympathetic high priest to us. Isn't that something? So Jesus knows what it's like to be an eight-year-old, and he knows what it's like to be a teenager, and he knows what it's like to hurt, and he knows what it's like to go through the human experience. Well, what was his mindset? Let's stay here in Luke chapter 2 and in verse 41. This is the only thing that we hear Jesus speaking until he's 30 years old, right here in Luke chapter 2. This is the only thing that we read about Jesus' life. Um, from after his birth up until his baptism when he's 30 years old. So it's significant. Verse 41. Now when his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph his mother knew not of it. Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. 
And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said to them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye or knew ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. So the Jews would go, at least the Jewish males were required, and sometimes the women would go with them every year to several feasts, including the feast of the Passover, where they would remember the deliverance of God when he delivered them from Egypt, part of the very identity of Israel, of their being brought out from slavery and captivity. And so they say that it, a lot of times it would be, I assume, kind of like what some of our family reunions would be. Oh, if you didn't live in Jerusalem, families and, like he says, kinfolk and acquaintance would go down to Jerusalem for the maybe the seven days or eight days of the feast, and they would enjoy the Passover together, and then they would come back. And they say that a lot of times the, the women and the smaller children would, would travel out ahead, and the men would be behind them, and they would all settle at night. And they say that in the Jewish traditions of that time that, the kind of the in-between boys, like the 12-year-olds, that sometimes I'd be up there with mom and the kids, and I can see some of them, like, I'm going to stay back with the men and dad, you know. And so it's a classic case of <laughs> probably all of his parents have experienced, you got them, I thought you had them, I, that's your fault. I, you t-. And that's, it, even, it even happened back in those days. And so they, they go a day's journey all the way out there, and then you have this, he said, she said, you know, where's he at? And you can imagine, any parent can imagine, oh, where is he? And so they go a a second day back to Jerusalem. And where do they find him? They find 12-year-old Jesus sitting in the temple in the midst of all the scholars of the law. And it was common that they said that the, the, these, these scholars would, with their students, they would a lot of times have a question and answer format as a way of teaching. And the students would ask questions and the, the scholars would ask questions to the students to test them. And so Jesus is probably both receiving questions and giving answers and then asking questions. And they are, they're astounded. They're astounded at him. And I just love this thought of Jesus that, that, that he felt compelled to be in the temple. And he felt compelled to think about the word of God. He felt compelled to look at these scriptures and to ask questions. And in this amazing, of course, they just had the Old Testament scriptures at that point. All the scriptures they're talking about in some way are pointing back to this 12-year-old boy. Pointing back to this 12-year-old boy. The very temple that he's sitting in, he's the fulfillment of that temple, right? He's the, he, the glory of God dwells in him. He will be the ultimate sacrifice that will take away sin. Well, we can understand Mary... And she comes and, and just, she's not happy, right? Why have you done this to us? I mean, we have, we have been sorrowing. And she says, your father and I, it's significant, your father and I, Joseph and I, we've looked for you. We've been sad. We've been brokenhearted. What have you done? Now, Mary, know, Mary knew that Joseph wasn't really Jesus' father. But for legal purposes, Joseph had pretty much adopted Jesus. And so everybody considered him the son of Joseph. Look at how Jesus responded. He wasn't being smart aleck. He wasn't being disrespectful. But look what he said. He said, 
how is it that you saw me? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? My father's business. See, it's as if Jesus took for granted. I am not here for fun and games. I am here for my father. Like that, even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus had a consciousness that God was his father. What he all knew in his humanity, I don't know, but he had this consciousness, God is my father, and, and I, I love this word, I must, I must be about my father's business. I must be about the work of my father. So this, this sets it up. This is the only story that we have, the only words we have recorded from Jesus in this interim period, the only, only thing we know from the time that he's dedicated to the temple to when he is uh, 30 years old, this is all that we have. But isn't it significant that even in this interim period, it was on the consciousness of Jesus that he would be devoted to the business of his father? Aren't you glad he never got sidetracked from that? Aren't you glad he never became undevoted? Brother Nathan talked about being steadfast. He was never not steadfast to the mission that the father had given to him. If he had been, right? If he had deviated, where would our salvation be, right? But Christ, even at this time, was devoted, saying, I must be about, I'm compelled to be about the business of my Father. Well, that's, our, that's connected to our salvation, but isn't it also instructive for us, brothers and sisters? Like thinking about the kingdom last night, that we are not here for a life of self-indulgence. That no matter how young that we are in the faith or how old that we are, that we are not here to merely serve ourselves. It ought to be our heart's cry as well that I must be about doing the will of God. As a church, shouldn't that be our focus as well, that we're not here just to fill up space, we're not here just to do a, a Sunday morning routine and we, we preach and we pray and we eat and then we go do life. But rather as a church that we're here, we're about the business of building one another up in the Lord. Ephesians 4, of growing up into spiritual maturity, of all the one another's, right? Of loving one another, exhorting one another, caring for one another, forgiving one another, serving one another. That we're about the business of being lights in this world and salt in the earth. About the business of holding up and showing forth, proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by a Savior who is not distracted from his mission. And so may we follow in his footsteps, not for our salvation, right, but in response to it, that we also not be distracted from the calling that Christ has given um, to us. Jesus was devoted to his mission. Now, we come to Luke chapter 9. Jesus has already been baptized. He's already engaged in his public ministry. And many people... You know, the liberals say that, well, Jesus, we, you know, we, we, we love the good things that he taught. You know, love your neighbors yourself and, and go the extra mile and, and these good moral lessons that who can argue with, right? And some say, yeah, we, that's, that's the Jesus we want, the, the one who was a good teacher. Um, he got along with people. Uh, he, he, you know, just kind of a gospel of, of be nice to your neighbor and we'll all be okay. <laughs> and G, listen, Jesus taught the highest morals that there are, right? Jesus taught us how to live. Don't let me, don't think I'm discounting that. But Jesus' mind and his focus was not merely on giving a few nice little sounding proverbs. Jesus, the heart of his mission, and it was on his heart and his consciousness, the heart of his mission was the cross. 
It was the cross. And Luke tells us that. Look at Luke chapter 9. Jesus said, he said here in verse 22 to his disciples, he said, the son of man must, there's another must, he must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. In Luke 9 verse 51 It says, and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 18, in verse 31, here again he repeats it as as he's getting closer to the end. Luke 18, 31, then he took up to him the twelve and said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered to the Gentiles and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spitted on and they shall scourge him and put him to death and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things and this saying was hid from them. Neither knew they the things which were spoken. You ever had something you just dread? You know it's coming up, right? Some very difficult task before you or some hard conversation you need to have or some or maybe some surgery that's coming, or some medical treatment. You just you, you don't want that day to come because you know what it's going to mean. It's going to mean discomfort at best and pain at worst. I love this about Jesus. He knew what was coming, right? I mean, he told them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be spat upon. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be rejected of men. I'm going to be scourged by that Roman scourge. I'm going to go to the cross. And you know what a lot of our response would be? You know, let me be a Jonah. You know, let, me, let me get a ship and go away as far from that as I can. But I love that it said he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. I'm all in. I'm all in. I'm going to face it head on. Isaiah prophesies of him. It says he set his face like a flint. In other words, this was a good kind of stubbornness. <laughs> this was a good kind of stubbornness. You're not going to distract me from my mission. And listen, Jesus did that out of obedience and devotion to his Father and out of love for us believers, out of love for us. We can think of that individually and personally. Jesus loved me, and his love was manifested. He said, I'm not going to try to escape Jerusalem. I'm, I'm not going to go a short route. I'm going to go all the way to the cross. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, Remember one of the temptations? Satan said, hey, look at all the kingdoms of the world and all this glory. I'll give it to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. You know what he was promising him? He was promising him, I'll give you some glory without the side of suffering, right? I'll give you the entree of glory. You don't even have to have the side plate of suffering. Well, guess what? The Father had promised him glory, but it would come through what? The path of suffering. And Jesus said, Satan, take a hike, right? You're not going to distract me from my mission. Even if it means discomfort and pain for me, I am going to go to the cross to redeem my people. Don't you love Jesus for that? Don't you say, Lord, thank you? Thank you for your grace and your mercy? Well, back in chapter 9 in this same chapter, after he gave them that first word about I'm about to go, look at what happened next. You know this story, the transfiguration. There's something significant about this, about Jesus' mission. In verse 28 it says, 
It came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, or Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Unusual scene, right? The, the veil is pulled back a little bit, and the glory of Jesus is seen. And Moses and Elijah have already gone, they have already passed away, yet in some way they appear in some glorified form before Jesus. And this gives me chill bumps. Look at what they're talking about. Imagine that conversation. They are speaking about his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. I don't know what Moses said or what Elijah said, but it may have been, Lord, go. You know, go. You're going to redeem us. I mean, we're already, we're already benefiting it from, from it because we're in glory. But, but this is, Moses was the law. Elijah was the prophets. Lord, you're the fulfillment of all of this. You're about to go, and you're going to fulfill all the prophecies, and you're going to fulfill that law, and then you're going to bring salvation to your people. Isn't that a glorious thought? That the very thing on their heart and mind, the thing that discussion was made, was about this glorious death. Listen, brothers and sisters, it took that death for our redemption, right? We sing that, that, that praise song, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin. Salvation is not some cheap thing, is it, right? cost the very blood of Christ, and yet it was planned and ordered and ordained by God, and Christ willingly came out of love to his people to bring this great and this glorious redemption. So the cross was ever upon the focus of Jesus, and that's another theme throughout, obviously, the gospel of Luke. He's setting his face to Jerusalem. The cross is on his mind. That's the end goal of his mission. All of the teaching, all the miracles, all the great works that he'll do, all of it has a place and a purpose, but ultimately... I'm headed for the cross. Ultimately, I'm headed for Jerusalem. Praise, praise be to Jesus for his grace. Another thing that we see in this gospel of Luke, that Luke wanted Theophilus to see, right? You see that Christ was focused upon his mission of the cross. But also, if you look in Luke 19, you know this story well. And I think if there's any theme, good theme verse for Luke, there's probably many, but one good one is Luke 19, verse 10. But we'll read the whole story here. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, verse 1 of Luke 19. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was of little stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must, ab- I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was going to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything uh, from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Theophilus, what was Jesus doing here? What do I want you to know, Theophilus? What was he doing here? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. You, you know about the publicans, the tax collectors, you know, those who would work for the Roman government and charge what the Romans charge and then get plenty on the side to line their own pockets. They're obviously hated in society, and understandably so. Understandably so. It, it, it would be like if Russia really did conquer all of Ukraine and a bunch of Ukrainians started working for the Russians and get tax money, the Ukrainians, the, the, the patriots would hate them, right? And of all people, right, of all people, as Jesus goes to Jericho, and there's a big crowd, and the crowd is so big, of all people that he would go to, who, do you, who would we guess that he would go to their house? Not a publican, right? Not a tax collector. Not the chief of the tax collectors. He's very rich because he's very corrupt. <laughs> you know, sometimes in our churches we, we, we say, uh, you know, we want a, a really nice-looking folks to join our church, preferably plenty of money to give, and, and the kids are super well-behaved, and everybody's buttoned down. And Listen, we, we want you know, all the good people God will bring us, right? all the truly saved, right? But, brothers and sisters, you look at Luke's gospel, and Jesus dealt with all kinds of folks. In Luke chapter 7, it's the, it's the woman who's a sinner, likely a prostitute, right, who just given herself over to evil and she's the one she's the one that Jesus receives she's the one who is weeping and mourning over her sin and Jesus doesn't say get away from me you filthy thing rather Jesus says your sins are forgiven you you are received when Jesus told the the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son in Luke 15 he told it he told it because the Pharisees were criticizing him, saying, this man eats with publicans and sinners. Now, Jesus did not eat with the sinners because he was condoning their sin or encouraging their sin or celebrating their sin like the world does today. Jesus was receiving them out of compassion and grace and mercy and was redeeming them and transforming them and cleansing them. One of the most beautiful things of Luke's gospel is that Jesus eats with sinners. That Jesus receives sinners. That Jesus is the friend of publicans and sinners. Listen. Listen, church. That's the kind of friend that we need. Isn't it? That's the kind of Savior that we need. So whenever you get to the point where you've got all your sins taken care of, you let us know, right? <laughs> let us know. But we, but we all, all from the most mature godly saint down to the most uh, weak, immature babe in Christ. We need such a Jesus. And for the unbeliever who's not yet come to Christ, that's the Savior that he needs. He needs one who will cleanse him. He needs one who will renew him. He needs one who will transform him. He needs a holy Jesus who delights to receive sinners. It doesn't seem to make sense, does it? A holy, a holier than we can imagine Jesus who delights to receive sinners. I love what, in Jesus' reflection of God's character, I love what Micah says, that God delights in mercy. Sometimes we think of God as begrudgingly giving us mercy, or, okay, <laughs> I'll give you mercy. But he's a God who delights in mercy, and Christ shows us that throughout his life, as we see recorded 
of course, in all the Gospels, but here in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, of all the people, right? Of all the people in Jericho, Jesus says, I'm going to this man's house. I have, I have, a, I have a mission. And notice, we already read the word must in Luke 2. Here's another one. Zacchaeus, verse 5, make haste and come down for today. I must abide at thy house. It wasn't an accident. I must abide at your house today. Do you know, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that there was a day when Jesus had a divine must with you. He had a divine must with you. I must bring you from darkness to light. I must bring you to repentance of your sin. I must bring you to renounce your own self and your own righteousness. I must bring you to trust in me. I must bring you from death to life. Praise be to God that Christ had a divine must with every one of his people, of all who are brought to believe upon his son. Why? Because the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Oh, what a Savior. What a Savior is Jesus Theophilus, you need to know that, Luke is saying. <laughs> this, is, this is what we're talking about. This is the very heart of the Christian faith. We think about that thief on the cross that we talked about last night. We think about that woman in Luke 7 that we just alluded to. We think about Zacchaeus and forgiveness. You know, there's nothing more important to consider than that, is there? R.C. Sproul, he used to say to people often when they would when they would, he would have arguments with people about their atheists or agnostics, and he would finally just you know, get through all the philosophical arguments, and he'd say, I would always ask him, what do you do with your guilt? <laughs> at some level, everybody knows they're guilty. Not in a saving way, but at some level, people know they're kind of not all the way right. Now, they'll, they'll, they'll sugarcoat it, uh, you know, harden their conscience, whatever, but at the end of the day, that's a question for all of us. What do you do with your guilt? There's lots of options, right? You can ignore it. You can try to lie your, way out of, lie your way out of it. You can try to rationalize it, justify it. You can try to compare yourself with others who look worse to make yourself look better. You can try to work, 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 work really hard, and maybe that'll kind of pay off your debt to God. But what do you do with your guilt? Because God's holy, and we all stand guilty. And the gospel, the gospel of Luke tells us the gospel of our Savior, that the only wise course of action to take with your guilt is to run as fast as you can to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy upon me. Just like the, the, the uh, publican did in the, um, in, the, in, the, in the parable with the Pharisee. The Pharisee saying, Lord, you know, I'm going to congratulate you for how righteous that I am. And the publican says, I am guilty, and God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went down to his house justified. That man went down to his house justified rather than this Pharisee. The free, the full, the abundant forgiveness. And Jesus was criticized for that, right? He was criticizing Zacchaeus' case. This guy's going to eat, be a guest with a man who's a sinner. In the woman's case in Luke chapter 7, the, the Pharisees said, if this guy were really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman he's letting touch him, right? What do we see there? Jesus was willing to bring forgiveness and cleansing to people, and he was willing even to take shame for it. He was willing to bear the reproach of society for that. And on the cross, was there a greater shame? Here he is, treated like the lowest scum of the earth, the vilest criminal by the Romans. He's stripped naked. 
Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, the law says. The Father's wrath poured out upon him. When we think about forgiveness, it's not this, again, it's not this cheap, cheap grace kind of thing. This is costly. This is expensive. This is a Savior who doesn't just wave a magic wand and say, yeah, you're forgiven. It's all fine. Here's one who had to bear our shame in order to bring forgiveness. But oh, the forgiveness he brings. Listen, it's full. It's complete. It's once and for all. Praise be to Christ. And we see that in Luke's gospel. We see Jesus interacting with, again, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, with the sick, the handicapped, the blind, the women, because that was unusual. For that time, women were not, they didn't have the rights that men had in society. And Jesus would, would have these women in his company. They're even named in his gospel. Women like Joanna and Susanna, you don't find name anywhere else, but they get, they get names in this gospel. That Jesus, Jesus is the savior of the nobodies, somebody has said. He's the savior of the nobodies. Jesus is the savior who has good news for bad people. <laughs> the savior of the nobodies, good news for bad people. Well, couple more thoughts. What kind of people did Jesus forgive? Again, we said it wasn't a cheap forgiveness. Look in Luke chapter 10. Jesus, in his gospel, his teachings, he didn't preach a cheap grace. He didn't say, hey, I'll be your friend as a sinner and you can just keep on sinning and it's all okay. Jesus demanded repentance. Didn't he? He demanded repentance. In verse 13 of Luke 10, Jesus give the, gives these woes, these curses upon these unrepentant cities. He says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which, um, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sinning, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Now look, at, now look in chapter 13, in verse 1. It says, There were present at that season, some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, he said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans which that, which they, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Jesus demanded repentance. And he, he had, listen, Jesus had incredibly sweet words of grace in this gospel. Like we read last night, today you'll be with me in paradise. And Jesus had stern, hard, blunt words for those who went on in their sin and refused to repent and receive him. Listen. Jesus isn't playing games, is he? He's not playing games. And there's really two kind of people in this world. 
Like we said last night, those in the kingdom of darkness, those in the kingdom of light, those who have rejected and renounced their sin and have repented and embraced Christ and those who go on in their own way. And Jesus said, if you go on in your own way forever, you will perish. You'll perish eternally. You'll be cut off from God. I just mentioned that the, the, the parable of, of the, uh, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, the prodigal son. And we, we, we read of that glorious uh, parable of forgiveness. But notice what Jesus says repeatedly in that parable. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over what? Over one sinner that what? That repents. More than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. He said it again in verse 10 of Luke 15. Likewise I say unto you there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. So when we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the grace of Christ. But if we're, if we're, if we're rightly proclaiming the gospel, brothers and sisters, we also, we also proclaim from Jesus' own words the right response to the gospel, right? We preach the gospel and we say, here's what our response to the gospel ought to be. It should be a full-hearted receiving of it and a repenting of our sins, so in the very last chapter of Luke, and we'll close with this, in the very last chapter of Luke, when Jesus had risen again, appeared to his disciples, and sends them out to preach, notice these words in Luke 24, verse 46. He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, get this, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You see that? Here's the good news of the gospel, Theophilus, and all of us. Here's the good news of the gospel. We are more sinful than we have a clue of. We have broken God's law. We have broken God's law. We violated his standard. We are condemned and defiled with our own sin. And it's not anybody else's fault but our own. But God has sent his son Jesus, who is a mighty savior, who had no sin, truly God and truly man, offered himself on the cross for a perfect sacrifice to the Father for sinners like you and like me. And everyone who, by the grace of God, and is only by the grace of God, repents of their sins and embraces Christ, they have the full and the free and the forever forgiveness of all of their sins. And that gospel is sure. It's sure. Theophilus, right? And all of us. May we, as, a, may we as, a, as individuals and may we as churches cling to this Jesus, embrace this Jesus, and cling to this gospel. I, I pray and hope that these thoughts have been edifying for your soul. God bless you. <clears throat>